Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. So many places that we could start this morning. Let me start with a shout out uh, to Anne for the rhubarb that she shipped. I have not made anything with it yet, but I intend to today so that I can give you a tasty Tuesday taste and see that the Lord is good report in the morning. So thank you uh, so much for that. And all of you who texted and emailed in your uh, favorite rhubarb recipes. If you missed out on that opportunity, there's still time. Uh, Send me your best rhubarb recipe. My email is carmen at myfaithradio.com. All right, I'm going to lead off this morning with uh, a brief commentary on the life well-lived of Representative John Lewis. Um, you, have, you have heard much already. Uh, it doesn't matter what news source you tune into. You know who John Lewis um, is. You know uh, how well he served. Here are a few reminders. John Lewis was the son of Alabama sharecroppers. He was only 23 years old when he addressed more than uh, a quarter of a million people gathered in the National Mall for the March on Washington in 1963. So you may think that uh, a quarter of a million people gathered today on the National Mall would be a really actually extraordinary event. Um, It wouldn't happen uh, in coronavirus restrictions, but it's it's an extraordinary number of people. It was an extraordinary number of people in 1963, and it was an extraordinary reason for which they gathered. Uh, and this was a part of what um, John Lewis said at that point in time. We're tired of being beaten by policemen. We're tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom, and we want it now. We do not want to go to jail. But we will go to jail if this is the price we must pay for love, brotherhood, and true peace. That was 23-year-old John Lewis in 1963. He did go to jail uh, 40 times. His skull was fractured by police officers in 1965 on a bridge in Selma, Alabama. He's also been serving for many, many years as the representative of the 5th District of the state of Georgia in the U.S. Congress. He first announced that he was undergoing treatment for stage four pancreatic cancer in December, and he died on Friday at the age of 80. Uh, Lewis has served in Congress since 1987. And so for many of us, he has literally like been there forever. And Congress won't be the same without him. And the country won't be the same without him. Former President George W. Bush said this in a statement after Lewis's death. John answered brutal violence with courageous hope. And throughout his career as a civil rights leader and public servant, he worked to make our country a more perfect union. John Lewis was considered to be the moral compass, um, even the conscience of Congress. And so let me ask you today, what do people do when they lose an external compass, when they lose uh, a person, an individual 
who has been serving as a guide for their conscience. What happens when individuals are guided by their own conscience if that is not a conscience captive to Christ? Which John Lewis, you know, maybe we should have started this off by saying, a brother in Christ has gone to be with the Lord. John Lewis started preaching when he was a very young child. Uh, his um, His first congregation were the chickens in the yard at his home, and he actually describes what it's like to preach to them. John Lewis is a man who I would describe as having led a life worthy of the calling to which he had been called. He led a life worthy of the calling to which he had been called. And Christ had called him unto himself, into himself, and for the advancement of the gospel, particularly through the civil rights movement in the United States of America. And John Lewis led a life that was worthy of that calling. And that is a question that I just want to put before each and every one of us today. When John Lewis talked about um, the compass that he followed, he talked about the one who is the way and the truth and the life. When he talked about his own conscience, he talked about a conscience that was captive to Jesus Christ. When he talked about uh, godliness, he talked about a life that was marked by goodness, beauty, and truth. And when he talked about trouble and getting into trouble, he talked about finding good trouble to get in. That all the trouble he'd ever gotten into was good trouble. So let me encourage you today to consider the good trouble that God might be calling you to get in in order to advance the gospel always and in all ways. We're going to pivot now and talk about uh, COVID-19. There are a total of more than 56,000, almost 57,000 new cases confirmed yesterday here in the United States. 7.4% of the tests reported are coming back positive. People continue to lose their life to this virus Uh, America's pandemic death toll has reached 140,500 individuals. Those numbers matter because they represent people, individuals, households. Zach Jenkins is up next to bring us up to date on all things COVID. We'll be right back. Zach Jenkins is back. He's a clinical specialist in infectious disease. He's also an associate professor of pharmacy practice at Cedarville University. He tweets at farm, P-H-A-R-M, farm D hiker. Zach, welcome back. Good morning. Good morning. All right. If I were um, just to start a conversation with you by saying, what's the COVID or coronavirus headline you're most interested in talking about this morning, which one would it be? Oh, there's there's a lot of them. I would say one big thing that uh, is starting to make me as a healthcare worker a little bit concerned is the shortage of PPE that seems to be blooming again. Okay, and when you say um, a shortage of PPE, we're talking about personal protective equipment. I think of that as the kinds of gowns and gloves and masks and face shields and whatever else um, healthcare workers need to keep themselves and others safe when they are serving people who are COVID positive. Am I defining that correctly? You are very correct with that definition. And the reason I'm pretty concerned about that is we're still seeing cases across hospitals in the U.S. And there's recent data that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association that suggested whenever we implemented universal PPE requirements for all healthcare workers, not just providers, but people in healthcare facilities, 
um, it actually reduced the number of cases that those those workers had significantly. So I believe it was about 0.5% or excuse me, yeah, 0.5% per day um, as kind of the pandemic went on. So it brought the percentage of exposed workers down significantly. And so the data is there to support the mask use. And I, I really wish that uh, we had ample supplies for that. Maybe that would lead us to a conversation about the percentage of people who are in the general population and then p- people who are maybe more likely exposed to COVID-19 simply because of where they live and serve. Um, one of the things that I keep getting in my email um, are these like announcements about where to go get a test for antibodies. I don't I don't think I've been uh, I have never had any symptoms whatsoever. So I haven't been to have an antibody test. I have had uh, three COVID-19 tests that have all come back negative, but I did those in advance of going, um, you know, a few days in advance of going to see my parents who are in their 80s. And I did not want to, you know, go and risk exposing them, even though if we're not six feet away from each other, we, you know, we wear masks. So, or at least I do. So um, talk with us about um, where where we are in terms of the percentage of the population that's already had it and therefore maybe is immune to it? And then let's talk about that. Can you get it again? Very good, very good questions. Um, Some of the initial data that we were looking at with the antibody testing was suggesting that there was a wider array of the population that had been exposed to the virus. And and the the hope in theory was, okay, if those people have been exposed, then maybe they wouldn't get it again. Uh, One of the problems that we're running into is, as we look at some of the case reports coming out through different areas of the world that were exposed to the virus first. There are individuals being reported as being reinfected. What we can't really discern is, is first off, did they develop true immunity? We don't know how physically possible that is yet. The other element we don't really understand 100% is in those particular cases, was it all a matter of timing? In other words, had they gotten over the virus fully before they were tested again? So that, that's a tricky thing to kind of discuss. The other element, too, with antibody testing is the CDC estimates that about 50% of all antibody tests may come back with false positives. So we don't know how prevalent the virus really is based on that. But certainly it's more prevalent now than it was yesterday, as you can imagine. All right. And the lag in testing um, is it's a real concern to me. If you were to go and get a test today in particular parts of the country, you might wait 10 days or 14 days for your test results. Um, It seems, uh, I mean, people are supposed to self-quarantine during that time, but it seems like if they were positive, then any contact tracing that might take place is going to be almost, you know, too little too late to be of any good to anybody. So um, this lag in testing is of real concern to me. Is it of any concern to you? I, I think the lag is definitely a very important thing to think about, in particular as we start to more reintegrate people into society. So we're looking at the fall coming up where we're bringing people back into schools, into colleges. And as you can imagine, there's thousands of people that will be coming back in those locations. So if we have to use testing in, in a broad range of people, delaying that test with those big populations that are gathering again could be kind of a big concern. So. What that all comes down to is the fact that our laboratories still have limiting testing platforms. Um, They don't necessarily have enough personnel to even run the tests at times. 
And so you've seen some of that backlog occur to, occur as a result. Okay. I know I, um, I got a little off our list in terms of the things that you and I um, had planned to talk about this morning. So um, Zach and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we are going to talk about the rising number of cases across the, U- the United States, rising uh, no, you know, hospitalizations, and then we are going to talk about some COVID good news. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Today, I'm hungry and I'm ready for change. I run too far to still be the same. All right, continuing my conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins, uh, clinical specialist in infectious disease and associate professor of pharmacy practice at Cedarville University. Um, Zach, talk with us about what we are hearing um, pretty loudly from, you know, every media outlet. We have this rising tide of cases across the United States. I heard one person, you know, say, hey, we were trying to build a bridge to, you know, to August where we thought we'd be, you know, the curve would be flat and everything would be getting back to normal. And instead, it looks like we built a pier. Um, talk with us about what you're observing um, and then, you know, a little forecast of what's next. So I think what we're seeing with the rising number of cases in states is kind of a result of being really locked inside for a long period of time. We've had a lot of people that were locked away and all of a sudden they're being allowed to reenter into society. But the problem we're, we're dealing with is not everyone is acting like the virus is still there and it is still there. So the, the hope originally was that it would go away in the summer, and it doesn't seem to, seem to have done that. So the flu seasonal, this doesn't seem to be behaving like a seasonal virus. Right. Um, okay, so not a seasonal virus and um, not going away. So uh, I know that there's some good news that we want to talk about as well, and I don't want to run out of time before we do that. Um, but when we look at the rising number of hospitalizations across the country, I am you know, I am curious as a frontline healthcare provider, sort of how you're feeling where you are and, you know, and what you and your colleagues are talking about. So I just received an email yesterday that is telling me that we are now out of remdesivir, which is one of the new mm-hmm. drugs that we've been looking at with COVID. And one of the challenges we had early on is, as these cases rolled in, we were trying to decide who gets it, and who doesn't, because there wasn't enough to go around. Um, and we're still waiting for more to be allocated by the federal government to our, our healthcare system. So it's really tough um, to have an answer and then to not have the answer. And it's not that that's, I shouldn't say it that way. That's not the full answer, but it's definitely been a very useful tool in treating these patients. And it's contributed to a decreased ICU mortality. So that's, that's been a, a big, big factor that's kind of been on my radar lately. Okay, and then and then on the good news list, we have um, we have several things to talk about. So, um, talk a little bit about the survival rate and uh, and vaccines. So, I guess that, that's a great point to kind of step off of. So, I mentioned you know remdesivir has been pretty helpful. Um, the other things that have been helpful have been using steroids. There's been good data to suggest that um, corticosteroids can decrease mortality rates significantly in the hospital setting. Um, we've also gotten a lot better at not using treatments that are ineffective. So we know ventilators aren't as great in a lot of our patients because it doesn't behave like we would normally expect. So we've learned a lot more about the virus and it's really impacted our ability to care for people better. And so worldwide, not just in the U.S., but worldwide, we're actually seeing a decrease in mortality rates. And mortality rates would seem to me to be, um, you know, important in this conversation. If people are going to get sick and they are going to get better, um, we're we're supposed to not be surprised by that. We don't have a vaccine yet. So you and I have talked a number of times about the fact that this is 
a new virus. Therefore, people don't have immunity to it. Therefore, everybody when exposed or a high percentage of people when exposed are not only going to become infected, but they are going to become symptomatic. Most people's systems will work through that as we do with, you know, flu and other coronaviruses to which we are exposed. Um, and, And yet some people, some percentage of the population will die because we don't have an immunity to it and because we don't have a vaccine. So let's just remind people again this is not about uh, nobody getting it. Like w- people are going to be exposed and people are going to contract the coronavirus. And we're being as vigilant as we can about protecting ourselves and one another. Um, but people are going to continue to get this until there is a vaccine. That's absolutely true. And, and another thing to keep in mind is that we're still technically in the first wave of the virus. Um, it doesn't seem to have really subsided enough to say that people have been exposed to it and we're now entering a second wave. So absolutely people will be exposed to this. And I think that's what re- what's really telling for us to think about is that uh, this is something we have to learn to live with. So that means making sure that we're taking a lot of big precautions and trying to act like the virus is still there and, and not act like it's never been a concern. Okay. And then um, vaccines, tons of headlines related to vaccines um, does it matter? Uh, does it does it even matter if we talk about them today because we don't actually have one yet? Let's maybe, you know, maybe do, do that. And then um, and then I would love to ask you, does it matter that data is now not being reported to the CDC, but being reported to some other um, place in the federal government? So as far as vaccines go, I, I think the one positive note to share is we have three vaccines that have entered into phase three trials which are the larger scale trials that really have to take place before anything can be approved by the FDA in the United States. So three big ones that have entered into phase three trials. Um, the, the concern I think people have is could these be rushed? And that's always certainly a possibility. We've seen things be rushed when we've looked at studies so far where we've had to retract things and look at things more carefully. What I will say is the FDA has issued some pretty strong statements about how they're not going to compromise how they look at safety with, with any of these products coming to the market. So it, at this point in time, that's probably the best I could say about vaccines. There's estimates, too, that we may see some at best by the end of the year or in the early spring of 2021. Um, insofar as data goes, so I know there was a shift where the CDC had the dashboard with COVID data, and now the uh, Department of Health and Human Services, which the CDC resides under, now is actually getting all that data from hospitals. And, and you know, it's a tough thing to kind of speak to because it's it's being politicized one way or another. Um, some people feel that the CDC has not been very forthcoming, and other people feel that switching to HHS is this administration's attempt to kind of hide data. And I honestly don't know which way I would speak to that. Um, all I'll say is that you have to trust what the data is that's presented to you to the best of your ability um, and compare it to what you're seeing in reality and then try to act on that. All right, Zach, you and I got to leave it right there. That is Zach Jenkins. He tweets at farm, P-H-A-R-M, like a pharmacist, farm D hiker. Uh, he is at Cedarville University and he is a clinical specialist in infectious disease. He's on the front line. Zach, we're praying for you. We're praying for your colleagues. Um, and thank you for helping us to better understand just the... Uh, just the um, massive amount of information that we're all exposed to every day related to the coronavirus. So thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Absolutely. We'll be right back. 
So we have a headline in the Washington Post today um, that uh, that I don't want you to miss. Um, and it is about Lebanon, what is going on in Lebanon. Um, and so I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs as a, as a setup for my next conversation, which is with Tom Adama um, from, the, uh, from the Foundation for the Heart of Lebanon. Lebanon is known as an o- oasis of prosperity and relative stability during the past decade of Middle East turmoil. Uh, Lebanon has descended into poverty, despair, and potentially chaos. This is in the Washington Post today. Economists are now predicting a Venezuela-style collapse with acute shortages of essential products and services, runaway inflation, and rising lawlessness in a country at the heart of an already unstable region. The Lebanese pound, which is their currency, has lost over 60% of its value in just the past month and 80% of its value since October. Um, just to translate that, that would mean every dollar you have would now be worth 20 cents or have the buying power of 20 cents. Prices are soaring. Goods are disappearing. Bread, which is a staple in the Lebanese diet, is in short supply because the government cannot fund imports of wheat. Essential medicines uh, have disappeared from pharmacies. Hospitals have laid off staff because the government isn't paying its portion. Surgeries are being canceled. I mean, on and on and on. Most parts of Lebanon are receiving no more than two or three hours of electricity a day. An incoming flight at Beirut's airport had to abort a landing because the lights on the runway went out. Traffic signals in the capital have stopped working adding to the congestion in Beirut's already chaotic streets, and uh, people involved in accidents have no one to come uh, care for them medically. These are among the latest symptoms of an economic implosion that is accelerating at an alarming pace in Lebanon as its government, its banks, and its citizens run out of foreign currency. All right, so we are going to talk about um, this economic collapse, what it means not only for the Lebanese people, but what it means for the region. And let's keep in mind... Lebanon has received more refugees per capita than any other nation in the world. And so what does it mean for the refugee population which fled, uh, which fled civil war in Syria? All of that up next with Tom Adama from The Heart for Lebanon. We'll be right back. Have you set high standards for your team? Do you want them to grow up to be smart, mature, and responsible adults? Of course you do. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. We all want the best for our kids, and a healthy amount of prodding and preparing are good. But when moms and dads become more concerned with meeting the standard and looking good to the neighbors, bad things happen. So don't give up on helping your teen become the best adult he can be. But watch what you're really after. If it's just the standard and making yourself look successful, you better double-check your motives. Get back to loving the kid in your household without concerning yourself with your reputation. Your team will love you for it. Mark Gregson is hosting a virtual Families in Crisis retreat on Zoom the weekend beginning Thursday night, July 30th. To register, go to familycrisisretreat.com. is the co-founder of Heart for Lebanon. Tom, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning. Good morning. So um, I would just love for you to start with a basic explanation of the situation as you see it in Lebanon today. 
Okay, I was going to say Paul. I was about to say Paul. I'm not hearing him. If other people are hearing him, I'm not hearing him. So uh, Paul Perot will dutifully reconnect with Tom Adama. Um, we are talking with Tom. He is the co-founder of an organization called Heart for Lebanon. Um, he has spent a lot of time in the region, in the country, uh, and we are looking really for that on the ground, um, uh, on the ground reporting, helping us understand what is happening. Uh, in the nation of Lebanon. As I have shared with you, um, the lights are out for all but two or three hours a day, including things like traffic lights. Would you just imagine if all the street lights went out, if all the traffic lights went out, and if you only had access to electric power two or three hours a day at your home or at your business, um, if your currency, the value of your currency dropped, every dollar you had uh, was worth, well, let's say instead of being worth a dollar, it was worth 20 cents. How would you change the way you spend your money? Um, what would you spend your money on if you really only had 20% of the buying power left? Like, just think about that for just a moment. All right, Tom Adama is back with us from Heart for Lebanon. Tom, give us uh, an explanation. Uh, how do you explain the situation on the ground in Lebanon today? Well, it's desperate. Uh, it used to be a first world country, the country of Lebanon, with a third world problem. Now it's a, becoming a third world country with a third world problem. Uh, economic situation in the country of Lebanon is beyond desperate. Hyperinflation has um, taken place over 10% each month for the last four months. Um, it's very expensive. Plus, you think we have riotings and protests in America. Uh, riots and protests are taking place all over the country of Lebanon as we speak. COVID-19 has been kind of an is kind of like a, just a footnote in the country of Lebanon. So not only the two million Syrian refugees that live in that country are living in despair, but the whole country is living in despair. In fact, it's said by the World Food Bank that by the end of 2020, 75% of the country of Lebanon will be in need of some kind of physical support. Talk with us about the Lebanon that you have known over time. I think that um, to help people understand how quickly this devolution has taken place, because what you're describing, like we have tragically heard about Venezuela, but Venezuela's path toward this kind of a uh, total economic disaster, social and economic disaster, was was long was a long road. Talk with us about the Lebanon that you have known as a flourishing democracy, and then how quickly this uh, this devolution has taken place. Yeah, I started going to Lebanon in two thousand and one to to teach biblical servant leadership to pastors from Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and Lebanon, and it was a fantastic country. You'd go there, and the food was outstanding. You were never came home and had lost weight. You always had gained a ton of weight when you go to the country of Lebanon. You'd walk around downtown, and it was kind of like the Riviera, Riviera of the Middle East. I mean, it was really gorgeous. It still is gorgeous down around the riverfront and a lot of places around Beirut. It was thriving, skyscrapers, 50, 60 stories high, all glass, just absolutely beautiful. And then over time, as the Middle East has become more problematic and the refugees started pouring in first from um, Iraq and then from Syria, it has become this, as I talk about, becoming a third world country. It's an People are very hospitable. They're very likable. Um, it's a fantastic country to visit. In fact, I was there right after their president got assassinated 
back in 1985, I believe it was. And um, it wasn't as bad as it is today, even though there was mm. a lot going on in the country back then. But it is sad to see it happen. Tell us about uh, the neighborhood, right? So, I mean, you know, if we were going to describe America's neighborhood, we would talk about Canada. We would talk about Mexico. We might talk about Central and South America. Sure. Talk with us about Lebanon's neighborhood and their neighbors. So remember that Lebanon's right on the, if you go through the Strait of Gibraltar and just keep going east, you'll hit the country of Lebanon. To the south is the country of Israel. To the east of Lebanon is the, is the country of Syria. Syria does come out on the Mediterranean Sea, north of Lebanon, but then you have Turkey. It's just basically one port. Uh, Lebanon is 52 miles wide. It's about as long as the state of Vermont. And um, the sea, everything has to be imported into Lebanon. They grow vegetables and some fruits, but everything else basically has to be imported. Uh, So things are extremely expensive right now. We talk about uh, our biblical knowledge of Lebanon. When we talk about the cedars of Lebanon, are we still talking about the same place? Yes, we are. But there's a lot of, lot of other things that have taken place in Lebanon besides the cedars of Lebanon. <laughs> Jesus walked there. Paul walked there. Uh, Peter watched Paul's feet um, back in the day. There's Jacob's Well. There's all kinds of biblical sites to see in the country of Lebanon. In fact, some of the best Roman ruins in the world are located in the country of Lebanon, uh, particularly in the Bekaa Valley or down in Tyra. I mean, there are some people who uh, who would place Jesus's first miracle as accounted by John in his gospel uh, as having occurred in the nation of Lebanon. So I mean, I do I do think I, I think that um, when places seem so far away and I'm trying to help listeners here in the United States who are, you know, whose attention is consumed by many things. And even when we you know, survey the international headlines of the day, I have to admit to you, you know, Lebanon is not the one that's screaming out. The ones that are screaming out are from China and Iran. Um, Those, you know, Mm -hmm. those are sort of the screaming headlines uh, internationally in the news. And yet this is a really desperate situation. And we have lots of brothers and sisters in Christ in the nation of Lebanon. So when we come back from the break, I'd like for you to talk about um, the presence of Christians in Lebanon, why, uh, why Lebanon matters in terms of uh, of a witness in this part of the world, um, and then maybe some thoughts on what people can do uh, to engage. So I'm going to continue my conversation in just a moment with Tom Adama from Heart for Lebanon. We'll be right back. Continue my conversation with Tom Adama from Heart for Lebanon. You can find them at heartforlebanon.org. Um, talk with us about Christians in Lebanon and the importance of um, the witness of Christians within Lebanon and then from Lebanon to the region. Well, thanks for that great question, because Lebanon is the most democratic, freest Islamic country in the world. You're allowed to proselytize in the country of Lebanon, even though um, it's an Islamic country. If you went with me to Beirut and go downtown, I would take you to Starbucks at Motor Square, And in there, 24 hours a day, you will see Bibles open on tables, people having Bible studies open and freely in in the great country. The good news is Christians can do that. The bad news is everybody can do that. The other bad news is, is that Lebanon 
is in the Middle East, as we all know. I don't mean that sarcastically. Um, but I, the point I want to make is, is that in the Middle East, when you talk about Christians, you have to define it because you're either born Christian or you're born Muslim in Lebanon and in the Near East. And Muslim is 57, 58% of the population divided between Sunni and Shiite, about 28% for both. And then you have other, other groups as well. But then you have about 40% of the population that's born Christian. So they're cultural Christian. If you're talking about evangelical Christian, people have put their faith in Jesus Christ, it's about 1%. So the majority, in fact, if you look at a culturally Christian, it's the most Christian country in the Islamic world, which gives you many freedoms that you don't have in other countries. But evangelical Christians is about 1%. You know, Tom, when we see, um, if we go to your website at heartforlebanon.org, and we just even just watch the, you know, just sort of the lead up video, I think one of the things that I'm struck by um, is that these people who are living in these, particularly in these refugee communities, you know, they are, there's a fence around where they're living. Um, mm -hmm. What is the experience of, um, you know, of these 2 million refugees who are now in, uh, in Lebanon? They are there really as guests. What happens when a nation's hospitality runs, you know, runs so thin um, because it, the needs for, of its own people are so great? Like, give us a little forecasting in terms of what happens here. Well, from a human viewpoint, it's, there's no good answer to this question. Um, there is no, they're going to go home someday, or this is going to happen, or this is what has to happen. This is the greatest opportunity for the Church of Jesus Christ to reach an unreached people group, the Muslim population that lived in Syria, with the gospel of Jesus Christ in history. This is a breathtaking opportunity. I like to phrase it this way. This is our Esther moment for this generation. We could not reach this many Muslims this quickly inside Syria ever before in history. Nor, for, if they go back, will you be able to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as much as I don't like the despair, as much as I don't like all the things that they have to live under and with, this has produced a great opportunity. Remember that when great um, persecution comes, when great uneasiness comes, even to our lives in the our lives in the United States, there's greater opportunity to meet Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Now we do it unconditionally, but yet holistically. And remember, unconditional goes. There's two sides to that coin, right? And so. When you serve them in a Muslim culture, you give them food, mattresses, and education, whatever you need. We have 500 children in our, 300 children in our educational program, over 1,200 on our Hope on Wheels children's program. Have all these different programs for these kids and for moms, which is the majority of the people we serve as moms and kids because there's no dad in the family because of the Syrian war. They begin to say, why are you doing this? Because in the Muslim culture, if I give you something, you owe me. This is why you know what the way the vote's going to go before they have the vote. What happens if you serve them unconditionally and you don't ask for anything? I've sat in a tent more than once where the people said, Uncle Tom, why are you you're doing this? Why are you serving me? You haven't asked me for anything. Well, I'm glad you asked because it's the love of the Lord Jesus Christ that compels me to do this. It's my compassionate heart that is because of Jesus' compassionate heart. One lady told me just about a year ago, she said, can you go get Jesus and bring him here? Because I'd mm -hmm. like to meet him and thank him personally. 
they're wide open to the gospel of Jesus Christ like never before in history. I can tell you the story of Peter that, that as I mentioned, we have an education program for the kids, and it's our thing purpose when the kids come into class to stand up in front of the class and tell them their story and what they want to be when they grow up. And Peter came in from Syria and stood in front of the class and said, two o'clock in the morning, the bomb went off, the house came down. I watched my father, my grandfather, my grandmother, my two older siblings all die in front of me. My mom came in and grabbed me and my younger sister up and in our arms and dragged us out of the house. And we walked for three days and finally made it into the country of Lebanon, and Heart for Lebanon found me and gave us some food and some clothes and a tent to live in on the side of the farmer's field, and I'm in class today. And the teacher looked at us and said, Peter, that's great. Glad you're with us. What do you want to be when you grow up? And Peter looked at the ladder very proudly and stood up straight as he could be and said, I want to be a terrorist when I grow up. I want to revenge my great-great-great-great-grandfather's death by the infidels. Well, if you came with me to Lebanon, and I hope the doors open back up again so you can go right now, they're closed, but, and met Peter like I did a year ago, about the same time, and asked Peter that same question. Peter, what do you want to be when you grow up? He would now tell you he wants to be a peace officer back in Syria, to, and not sure if that's a police officer or a pastor or what that looks like, but all he knows is, and he would tell you this in his own words, I just want to bring the peace that Jesus gave me to my people because it's the difference maker. Tom Adama from Heart for Lebanon. You can find them at heartforlebanon.org. Um, Tom, I'm, um, I'm moved by the truth that knowing Jesus personally brings great peace and that helping other people to know Jesus um, is the only potential for real peace. It's true in the city of Portland. It's true in the nation of Lebanon. It's true, um, you know, it's true in every time and in every place. Uh, God God does touch particular hearts um, for particular places and particular people groups, and I'm acutely aware of that. So I'd just like for you just to speak for a moment to those um, whose hearts God is touching right now for not only the people of Lebanon, but the Syrian refugees who are living within its borders today. Just, you know, spend a minute making a, making a personal appeal to those whose, whose hearts God is touching now for those people. Well, I think well, we're living in a period of time around the world that we can that parallels Second Chronicles chapter fifteen. So I think that we need to, as, as believers in Jesus Christ, if you're listening this morning, is pray to the Lord that you can use this time. Um, what is Corona nineteen? What are these protests going to be known for when you look back in your life ten, fifteen, twenty years from now? Are we going to use it for good, or are we going to use it to say, oh, my goodness, I, I got fear and in trouble and all this. This is, this is, this is no time to, to step back. This is a time to give it our all. This is a time to step out in faith with our local community as well as around the world and look for places that God is working and join him in what he's doing. He's doing some fantastic things in the country of Lebanon with the Syrian refugees and with, poor, with the increasing number of poor Lebanese. This is our moment in history. This is our Esther moment at home and abroad, and we better not waste it. It's not about how much money you can give. It's how much time you'll spend praying, praying that God will continue to give us enough time to reap a harvest for him, 
that he has predetermined to come into his family. This is our moment. I want to look back at COVID-19 and what we're all going through right now here in America and say to my great-great-grandkids, if we're still around, there's what God accomplished in my life during this period of time, not only with Muslims, but with my next-door neighbor at home as well. It's not either or. It's both. Mm. Tom Adama, thank you so much. I want to invite people to visit heartforlebanon.org. We'll be right back. So we started this hour by recognizing uh, the life well-lived of John Lewis, our brother. Let me encourage you in the words of the Apostle Paul from Ephesians chapter 4. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When we talk about leading a life which is worthy of the calling to which we have been called, we need to recognize uh, the name of the one by whom we have been called, to whom we have been called, in whom we have been called, and his name is Jesus. And so a life worthy of bearing the name of Christ into the world is really what we're talking about today. A life worthy of being recognized and remembered as a Christian, a Christ follower, one in whom Jesus would recognize himself. Something, uh, something is worthy when it can bear the weight of something. Can you bear the weight of being called a Christian today? Well, only if Christ is the one living in and through you. we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.